Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Today, we give you a speech from Convention of State's endorser, Mark Levin, who served in the Reagan administration and is host of the Life, Liberty and Levin and Mark Levin radio show. His number one bestseller, The Liberty Amendments, helped kickstart the Convention of State's movement in 2013, and this recording is from the 2019 COS Leadership Summit. Enjoy. Look, this is what we're all about. We're all about grassroots, right? But in order to make this thing happen, it requires more than just grassroots on the ground. It requires a big voice. It requires a voice because people have to hear about you. You know, if you're out there, it's the whole thing, if the tree falls in the forest, right, does it actually make a sound? Because nobody's listening. If, if we can't get the word out there about what we're doing, if, if somebody with a microphone, a big microphone, won't talk about what we're doing, things don't go like I hope they would go. And we were really blessed at the beginning of this movement. I'm going to talk a little bit when, after Mark gets up here, a little story about how this all happened. But at the very beginning of this movement, at literally the, the day we started, we were blessed with the attention of, the support of, the intellectual firepower of a giant, a conservative giant. A guy who's been a conservative giant for a long time. A guy who cut his teeth in the Reagan administration, has worked with all the giants, worked with Reagan, worked with Ed Meese. We were blessed with his support. You just can't imagine what that's like when you're starting a new project and you're wondering how many years you'll slave away in obscurity and all of a sudden somebody with this megaphone, with this platform is willing to step up and support. It's just, it's, it's meaningful beyond the actual effect, what it does for your heart and your spirit and your belief and your ability to see the future of where you're going is just extraordinary. Mark's been in the fight for a very long time. Obviously, you all know who he is. You all listen to him on the radio. I hope you all watch the Sunday show. Anybody love the Sunday show? Amazing, amazing stuff. But, you know, I told you I gotta tell you something about everybody as a person. And so, I don't know if you all know this story, my wife's probably gonna be mortified that I'm telling this story, but there was a time in my life when I was in jail. Oh, it got very quiet in here. <laughs> <laughs> now, and she's shaking her head like, no, please, honey. <laughs> uh, the truth is I was traveling. I, I usually travel armed because of all the threats we'd gotten in the Tea Party movement. I was in New York and I was transiting through LaGuardia Airport and they have an absolutely unconstitutional law which says if you have a firearm even locked in a case in your luggage that they arrest you for carrying a loaded weapon. And I didn't know this. I, I was traveling through. In fact, Richard Norman is here. I was on my way to a shooting party. You got to love Christmas shooting parties in Virginia, right? <laughs> I was on my way to a Christmas shooting party. I had the gun with me. I got arrested at LaGuardia. It was really brutal, horrible. I can tell you the whole story someday. It was a terrible experience. I joke about it now, but it was terrible. And uh, Richard came and rescued me, uh, got me out of jail after 12 hours in Queens. Thank you to the New Yorkers. That's a beautiful jail there, Central Queens. <laughs> Seriously, what is it, like medieval times or something? <clears throat> and so I was in jail, and, and that's something I never thought I'd say, by the way. So I was in jail, and that's something my mom never thought I'd say either. And she's here. So I was in jail, and when I came out of jail, I was pretty shook up. I mean, it was a, I joke about it now, but it was really traumatic. And I got a call from Mark, just out of the blue. And Mark called and said, hey, 
I just, be strong, I'm with you. Whatever you need, I'm here to help. They're gonna come after you, don't worry about it, it's gonna be okay. We know who you are, lots of people know who you are. It's all gonna be fine. Just hang in there, brother. I can't describe to you what a lifeline like that feels like in the dark of the night. That's the kind of man Mark Levin is. He's my friend, he's a supporter of yours, he's your friend. It is an honor and a privilege to invite Mark Levin to the stage. one of the most invigorating days in years for me, thanks to you. You are the great patriots who are going to save this country, and it needs to be saved. You have a tremendous leader in Mark Meckler, who's been through the battles. I know, I've been through the battles too. I never thought I would support this cause until I studied it. Always opposed it. But then I studied it. We've got a great man sitting right here in Tom Coburn who spent his entire life... <coughs> ...in the House, the Senate, leaves to join this movement to join this movement because he wants to save his country. And he understands and I understand that ideas matter. And when you look at American history, it takes a relative few number of people to make a difference. You know what I'm holding here? I went into my personal vault and I pulled out the December 23, 1776 Thomas Paine, The American Crisis. It's right in here. <clears throat> Definitely needs security when I leave tonight. <clears throat> of course, not from the liberals, I don't care. original copy of the Communist Manifesto, that would be a different story. <laughs> and I look at it now and then. It's one of the rare survivors of that period of time, and I think about what those men went through. America did not begin in 1619. But the New York Times began during the Holocaust, which it denied when it began, when it was going on, and right up to the end. This country was not founded in slavery. This country was founded in liberty. It's the United States of America. <clears throat> Other countries were founded in slavery, and slavery persists. Other countries were, followed, were founded in the radical, progressive, Marxist, socialist agenda, and their people are enslaved. 
This is America, where people are free to be free. We are not witnesses to history here. We are history. We're not going to watch as our country is devoured by the very people who hate this country's birth. I don't care if they're in the media, in the Democrat Party, or in academia. And you know better than anybody, working in the neighborhoods and the communities, that this is a daunting task. Well, so be it. That's our burden. We have children, we have grandchildren. We're not going to surrender the greatest country on the face of the earth and turn it into another failed European experiment. The Constitution of the United States is the greatest governing document ever conceived. <clears throat> now, why is it? Because the Constitution of the United States is intended to protect our unalienable rights as set forth in the Declaration of Independence. This country is unique in that it values the individual. Now read the Declaration of Independence. You won't find one damn word about slavery in the Declaration of Independence. If you want to know about your founding fathers and what they created, don't read the New York Times. Read Abraham Lincoln and what he had to say about it. And he did more to end slavery than any human being in this country, even more than Arthur Ox Sulzberger. <laughs> and what did he say? Well, I paraphrase. It was 1858. He was running for the Senate in Illinois. And though they didn't have to run, they ran because they wanted to influence the state legislature that was going to make the appointment. What did he say? He waved around that Declaration of Independence over and over and over and over again. And he said, the men who wrote this document, the men who voted for this document, the Second Continental Congress, and put their lives on the line, and were then, after, hunted by the British, the most powerful military force on the planet, those men put words in that document to ensure that one day that all men in America will be free and equal under the law. They knew they had difficulties. They knew they had issues to address. They could not resolve them then and there. They were fighting for their existence. They were fighting for their new union. And then we had a civil war. 730,000 dead. 730,000 dead in a nation of about 23 million people. And I'm not even counting the other casualties. Incredible. You know, when America decided to get into World War II after we were attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, we were viewed as weak. And Winston Churchill, whose mother was an American, he told his country, America's not weak. You must not know about their civil war. 
I read about their civil war. Thank God we now have America on our side. This nation has fought and fought and fought for liberty. We have fought for our own liberty. We have fought for the liberty of others. We are in one hellhole after another as I speak tonight. Young Yanks in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iraq, God knows where else, doing what? Defending our liberty and defending the liberty of other countries. And it's the most diverse fighting force on the face of the earth. Color, religion, you name it. The Revolutionary War didn't begin in 1776. It began seven years several years before. The activity was mostly in and around Boston. It wasn't a united country. There were disparate colonies. Some of the southern states said, what the hell is Boston doing up there? You know, we're selling our cotton and these guys are screwing around. <clears throat> uh, other states had a similar attitude about it. Well, they lit the fuse for liberty. How many here have heard of Dr. Joseph Warren? Doctor? Dr. Joseph Warren was the greatest patriot in America until he was killed, basically assassinated by the Redcoats. He was known better than Sam Adams. He was known better than Paul Revere. He was known better than John Hancock. Washington wasn't even known. He was barely known. He helped lead the Boston Tea Party. He's a doctor, a good doctor, trained at Harvard. And he would take in people for free and take care of them. A wealthy family that had a block of homes in Boston, everything on the line. And that's where those British troops were, right where he lived, right where he was, trying to hunt them down house by house. And he led the resistance. Joseph Warren, who was not taught in our public schools today, who most Americans never heard of before. Well, he's responsible for Concord. He's responsible for Lexington, as long as well, the other patriots. He sent Paul Revere to warn Adams and Hancock that the British sent out a team to assassinate them and hang them. And he was one of the leaders of the Massachusetts militia, a doctor. Two weeks before the Battle of Bunker Hill, really the Battle of Reed's Hill, but the Battle of Bunker Hill, he and the two other leaders of the militia penned a letter to the New York Assembly, begging them for gunpowder. We don't have enough gunpowder and the British are coming. In fact, they're here. Imagine looking over the harbor and these massive British ships with those big cannons. Imagine a relatively small militia, some regular army, but not a lot, with these redcoats marching, eight, 10,000 armed to the teeth, polished, marching beautifully. And there you are, ragtag, bunch of patriots. You don't even know if the other colonies support you. So they dug in on Breed's Hill. They dug in with everything they had. 
and they brought everything they had to fight the battle. <clears throat> and the British charge up the hill, and they push them back. And the British take significant casualties. And the British run up the hill again and take significant casualties, and they push them back. And the British come up the hill again, and they ran out of gunpowder. New York didn't have any gunpowder to give them. Joseph Warren insisted on staying on the front line, pulled out his sword, aimed between his eyes, and they executed him. Then they dismembered his body. They urinated on his body. They covered it with dirt. Ten days later, Paul Revere, an ironsmith, went looking for his mentor because he had replaced one of his teeth, a piece of iron, and they found Joseph Warren. I have that letter. It's now on display at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. I gave it to them. I didn't give it to the National Archives or the Smithsonian because I figured they'd stick it in some warehouse. Our nation is full of heroes like this. Now it's our turn. And in some ways, this battle is more complicated. This isn't an armed battle. It's a battle from within. What's called, and I agree, is a fifth column. This is a battle that uses the instrumentalities of liberty against liberty. It's a battle that uses the instrumentalities of our Constitution against our Constitution. Uses a free press against a free press. This is a radical progressive movement that was imported from Germany in the 1800s. It's an offshoot of Marxism, Hegelism. <clears throat> the intellectuals at the time who pushed this after the Civil War into the 19, early 1900s included, among many others, Woodrow Wilson. But he wasn't alone. Theodore Roosevelt. The Progressive Party had birth in both, uh, movement had birth in both parties, and still does, and still does, till Coolidge, who rejected it completely, and Reagan, who rejected it completely, and Trump, who instinctively rejects it completely. Our constitution's under constant attack. It's hard to even recognize it some days. In many respects, we live in a post-constitutional republic. It's not a federal republic, because the states really now exist at the behest of the central government. It's not really a representative government, because most of what the federal government does to the bureaucracy has nothing to do with representation. It's not really a constitutional republic. Since there is an ongoing constitutional convention in Washington, D.C., every day Congress meets and the court meets. So what do we have? I don't know. 
but we're fighting to keep what's left, but that's not good enough. We're fighting to get back what is ours. I'm speaking, not you and Mark's group. Just make sure if there's an IRS agent out there, they understand this. <laughs> we don't need lectures from the Democrat Party about liberty. <laughs> we don't need lectures from the party of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow about liberty. You, fundamentally, are the only thing that stands between a growing tyranny and a free republic. It's not enough to elect conservatives. It's important, but it's not enough. It's not enough to appoint originalists to the courts. It's important, but it's not enough. It's not enough to elect a conservative president. It's important, but it's not enough. The problems we are facing now involve a hundred years of a systemic attack on our constitutional and Republican system. And so what's necessary is a willingness to fight back a year, 10 years, a hundred years, whatever it takes. By the way, I see one of the great patriots sitting here, my man Chuck Cooper. Who has litigated for decades on behalf of liberty. And I want to thank you. You're not a grassroots. You're an army of patriots. That's what you are. Everywhere I go, I see you. Wanting to have photos taken carrying petitions around, wearing billboards we call t-shirts, <laughs> making the case for liberty. There are tens of millions of people who still love this country. There's a tens of millions of people who revere our Declaration of Independence. There are tens of millions of people who love our Constitution, who are not represented in one party in this country and not well represented by the other party. That's our constituency, an army of 100 million people. I want to remind you, when the revolution was declared in 1776, one third of the colonists were against the revolution. Many of them fought with the British. 
one-third of the colonists were indifferent, and one-third were patriots. The revolutions all over the world that are started with 10, 12 people. Castro started with 28. I shouldn't give Bernie Sanders that idea, but there you have it. <coughs> hey. There's more than enough people in this room to carry forth the counter-revolution to the counter-revolution to the American Revolution. And one side's going to win, and one side's going to lose. And I'm not a loser. And you're not a loser. And he's not a loser. You've had a wonderful few days here, and I want you to keep something in mind on the hot days when you're out there, on the cold days when you're out there, on the days that seem lonely out there. This is the way it works. This is the way it starts. You're leading a historic movement to preserve the most magnificent country on the face of the earth. And if you don't succeed, we don't succeed. So some days, when it seems lonely out there, stick your chest out and your chin up, put a smile on your face, and know in the end, it is they who are going to be staring at their loafers, not us. God bless you, and thank you. You know, hard to imagine... Uh a better place to be on a Saturday night than with you sitting here in a chair. Likewise, thank you. By the way, I've done a Sunday night sitting with you in a chair. That was pretty good, too. <laughs> and you were great. Uh, Tom and I really enjoyed it. It was very helpful to us. You know, uh, so one of the things that we've done with anybody who's come up here is just try to get a little bit personal and learn a little bit more about you. Can you talk a little bit about how you grew up and how it was you became conservative? It started in a log cabin. <laughs> You know, it's uh, a good question. I don't think about it that much. When I was 13 or 14 years old, I would watch these shows on TV and these Sunday shows. I was involved in precinct work for the Republican Party here and there. But it's funny. Uh, I didn't like people telling me what to do. It's so surprising. <laughs> I mean, if somebody had something to tell me that made sense, that was fine, but I didn't like people telling me what to do. You know, you're a young kid. And then, I, and then I'm hearing about things <clears throat> that the government is telling people to do and so forth, and I'd say to my parents, what's that all about? Now, my parents were Jewish. My father passed away in October. He was 93. My mother passed away in February. She was almost 88. 
And I think it's due to them in many respects. They were always Republicans. Jewish Republicans from Philadelphia. <laughs> <coughs> Even up more amazingly, they voted for Barry Goldwater. So I said, Dad, you and Mom voted for Barry Goldwater? I said, how did that happen? He said, oh, I knew all that crap they were saying about him couldn't be true, so I voted for him. <laughs> <clears throat> That's kind of my ideology. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? But honestly, the weirdest thing, you know, as I got a little older, I was watching the oil companies and OPEC and watching leftists, you know, senators and all say, we need to control the oil company. It all just struck me as bad. It struck me as wrong. Then I would read some of the greats. You know, Hayek and Mises. Uh, I'd watch Buckley here and there. I'd watch Friedman. I'd, I'd start, you start in educating yourself, and light bulbs go off, which is basically, I want to be left alone. Other people should be left alone. And who are these people who are constantly telling us what to do? And so that, I think that instinctively is, is kind of how it happened. Yeah, I love that. We, we talk a lot about there's a very common character trait among the people here. I think you embody this character trait. We say it's defiance. You seem like you're a little bit defiant, maybe. A little here and there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so everybody here obviously knows that you spent some time in the Reagan administration. Uh, as we look back through the lens of history for all of us, that's sort of a storied time, right? The, the real height of conservatism in our government and the great ideas being discussed and Chuck talked really about the scholarship that was being done. You guys were really in a war there. A lot of incredible stuff happened during that era. I wonder if there's a, like a personal story that sticks out for you during that time that maybe people don't know about, about Reagan himself. I'll tell you a story about Reagan, which <coughs> um, shows you the character the man had. Um, he was a remarkable man much smarter than he was ever given credit for. Very, very well read. You know, when you would look at his library, and his home library, he had all kinds of incredible books in there. Um, Ch Chuck Cooper and I were honored to work for a fabulous, fabulous man by the name of Edwin Meese. Uh, he, he not only was a fabulous moral man, smart, solid, understood the law, understood the Constitution, and he populated the Department of Justice like it had never been populated before, with originalists up and down the ladder. Um, and um, he decided to take on the left, and they decided to try and destroy him. And they unleashed independent counsel investigations against the most ethical man I've ever known in my life, right, Chuck? Um, while he was in office, you know, he lost his son in a horrible accident. Then he lost his grandson in a horrible accident. I, the fortitude was remarkable, and yet a very compassionate, thoughtful man. And he decided, I don't believe I've ever told this story, he decided <clears throat> to resign. He decided to resign, not because he wanted to resign, he was prepared to duke it out to the very end, because he hadn't done anything wrong but because he didn't want to hurt the election chances of somebody he'd become quite friendly with, the Vice President of the United States, George H.W. Bush. And he said to me, 
I cannot allow me to be used to defeat him. <clears throat> so, near the end, I was contacted and by one of the individuals around him, I was his chief of staff then, who said, uh, Mr. Meese wants to see you. So I went and saw him, I said, yes, sir. He said, come on, we're going over to the Oval Office. So it was Ursula, Ed, his wife, um, Brad Reynolds, a few others of us who happened to be there. He was resigning there and then. And we went into the Oval Office and President Reagan came out <clears throat> and Nancy Reagan came out. And Ed Meese said, I can't tell you what an honor it's been. And this is a man who's been by his side through the governorship, all the tough times. And, and Ronald Reagan would have stuck with him no matter what, because that's the kind of man Ronald Reagan was. And then Reagan says to Meese, I want to apologize to you. And Meese says, look, why? Because none of this would be happening to you but for me. They want me, they can't get me, so they went after you. So there's a moment that now you know about. That's incredible, that's some incredible character. We need to see more of that in public office. Thanks for sharing that with us. You know, Mark, you've written a lot of books. Um, I know that you write your own books. <laughs> that's kind of unusual these days. I've heard stories about how you write books, about stacks of books on your dining room table. I'm sure Julie has to deal with this. <laughs> no, she made me move them off the dining room table. <laughs> now I'm in the corner of the house. No, I'm just kidding, but they're off the dining room table. Can you talk about uh, your process for writing books? So, like, how do you get the ideas and then how do you work your way through it? Well, it takes me uh, 12, 14, 16 months to write a book because, you know, I'm doing other things. But as Julie will tell you, it is an enormously long task because I'm up, if I have an idea at three in the morning, I go down and I start working on it. If I read something that catches my attention, I look for the original source. I go for original sources as much as I possibly can. Well, if you look at the series of books I've written, the first one, Men in Black, is because I was I didn't think there was an, an, an honest description being made about the Supreme Court of the United States. And so I wrote that book, my first book, and it shoots up on the New York Times bestseller list. So of course the left starts attacking it. And there was a book out at the same time by some law professor from some law school uh, who had written a book about the Supreme Court, very complimentary, and I think he sold 5,000 copies. <laughs> That damn thing well selling 300,000 copies. <clears throat> my next book was about my dogs. Uh, my new publisher, Simon & Schuster, I told them, I have an idea about a book I want to write. It's an idea I've had for 20 years. They said, what is it? I said, well, it's about liberty and tyranny. I said, I'm working through it. I said, but I'm not writing it until I write this book about my dogs. <laughs> I'm sure they were immediately excited. <laughs> well, my dog had passed away, and I was very ups upset about it. I love dogs, and I, I can't, you know, putting them down is a horrendous thing. So anyway, <clears throat> I, wrote, I wrote a book called Rescuing Sprite. 
Great book. That damn, that shot up the New York <laughs> Times list. <clears throat> so they said, don't start your other book yet. <laughs> keep, keep talking about rhetoric. So I sat there for, so this book, Liberty and Tyranny, um, I just said, I got to write a book that, number one, explains conservatism, the basic outlines of conservatism, because all these guys running for other talk, I'm a conservative, and they're rhinos. They're not conservatives. So I don't need to talk about running for office or the republic. Let me try and formulate a concise, understandable, rational explanation about conservatism. And in order to do that, you need to kind of do the same thing about its opposite. And I refused at the time. I do it now. I call progressivism progressivism because if you don't, people don't know what you're talking about. But in that book, I said, no, I'm not calling it progressivism. It's statism. So I called it statism. <clears throat> and I went through various chapters addressing various issues. And I had a uh, sort of a play on words, a conservative manifesto at the end of the book. Damn thing shot through the roof. It came out about the same time as the Tea Party movement. I, I have a timing thing. Yeah, you you're, do. Gonna, <laughs> you're gonna explain it in a minute. I, I will. I, I, I mean, the book comes out in March. The Tea Party was what, February? Something February. like that? And everybody in the Tea Party is buying the book, reading the book, waving the book around. That sold 1.5 million copies. That became, that became, and I, again, I, I would say providentially, the manifesto for the movement. If you were in the Tea Party movement, you had to buy that book. When I finished that book, I said, you know, I think it's pretty good, but what the hell do I know? And I sent it to my dad. And I didn't hear from him for a week. And he called me and said, that's a hell of a book, son. <laughs> he said, you're going to sell a million copies? Nobody sells a million copies of a book. I said, yeah, you're my dad. He said, watch my work. And there you have it. So what I do, uh, look, I start the book. I have a general idea where I want to go. But sometimes when you do research, it moves you in another direction. You know this, Tom Coburn. It's just the way it, it is. There's certain things I want to get into the book, certain concepts. I keep notepads. I, I do whatever I need to do. Uh, I don't pretend to invent every new idea. I don't pretend to invent any new idea. I just feel like I, I need to express it, use my platforms to advance the cause of liberty. So I will tell a story about... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story, a little story about the book that launched the Convention of States movement. Can okay. I stop you a second? Yeah. There's my beautiful wife, Julie. Absolutely. Can I say something about her? So I got to tell you, he was pretty good before Julie. He's unbelievable post-Julie. He was what? She, you were pretty good before her, but after her, ah, oh, no comparison. Mark 2.0, a lot better. Yeah. <clears throat> so... Uh, you know, when, when Mike Ferris and I started up, the, and Tim Dunn and Eric O'Keefe and Mike Ruthenberg and Penny, there was just a small group of us started up the Convention of States project. We had decided to go forward with this thing. It's this nascent little project, and we're trying to figure out how to get it started, and you know it's going to be slow. We'd hired, I think, two or three employees. We had a little office in Percival, right by Patrick Henry College. And we're just getting everything sort of started up, and we had not launched yet. And I appeared on a talk show panel that Hugh Hewitt put on in Tucson, Arizona. It was called Constitution on Fire. 
Uh, there were three of us on the panel. Hugh was hosting the panel. I don't even remember who the other guys were. But this incredible thing happened, which we didn't know when it was going to happen, but Mark Skyped into the panel from the bunker, right? <laughs> Very cool opportunity. So Mark Skypes in, and he tells us, look, each of you is going to get to ask Mark a question. Now, being the uh, promotional guy that I am, I thought this is an incredible idea to ask Mark a very self-serving question. <laughs> I'm going to ask Mark what he thinks about Article 5, right? Because I'm about to launch this project. How cool would it be if Mark said Article 5 was a good thing? Now, Mark and I, by the way, had talked about Article 5 sometime previously, and he told me it was a really bad thing. <laughs> so it might have been a risky strategy. But I did ask the question. So Mark comes up on the screen. There's a screen that I can actually see. And he's sitting there. He's got his baseball cap on and looking all casual. And he talks to us a little bit. We get to ask a question. And I say, Mark, I feel like we've lost our government. We elect the people that we think are going to do the things we want them to do. They go to Washington, D.C., and they don't do those things. And so I think what we have to do is we have to use Article 5 of the Constitution and call a convention of states because I think that's the only way we're going to recover our government. And Mark gave what to me is one of the most amazing Mark Levin answers I've ever heard in my life. And he's given a lot of amazing answers. And I'm going to do my best to quote you verbatim. He said, uh, yeah. I, uh, well, I, I think that, uh, well, I, uh, I'm writing a book. And uh, I can't, uh, the, uh, it's embargoed. I can't really, I can't talk about that. But I agree with you. That was the entire answer. <laughs> And I thought, wait, what was that? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I don't know what just happened. And did he, did he like that? Or did he not? That was weird. What was that? And it, it went to the next person asked the question. And I could still see Mark on the screen. And he was looking down while the next person was asking him the question. And I had my phone sitting on the table in front of me up on the dais. And my phone buzzes. And it's Mark. And he says, we need to talk. <laughs> He's amazing this way. I, I can text him during his show, and while he's talking, he's texting me back. And so Mark texts me, and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's good. He's really excited. He wants to talk to me. This is fantastic, right? That's the best thing that could possibly happen. And so he says, call me when you're done. So as soon as we're done, I'm just excited. You guys know I normally hang out to the very end. I bolt out. I go out to the lobby. I dial Mark up. And as soon as I an he answers the phone, he's yelling at me. <laughs> Have any of you ever heard Mark yell? <laughs> it's that <laughs> only it's at me and he's saying how dare you and I can't believe you did that and do you have any idea what you just did and you might have caused me to breach my contract and my book is embargoed and you had absolutely no right and I'm trying to talk and I'm sure if anybody's watching me what they're hearing is finally he stops and I, he takes a breath and I say Mark I have no idea what you're talking about and there's a long pause. he goes what do you mean <laughs> I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why'd you ask me that question? And I said, because me and Mike Ferris are starting this thing called the Convention of States Project, and, and we're using Article 5. We're going to get people together. Mike's the homeschool guy. He's got a network. I'm Tea Party guy. I got a network. And we're going to get together, and we're going to build this movement. We're going to call it Convention of States. And there's just silence. And Mark says, uh, my book is called uh, the Liberty, Liberty Amendments. And it's about Article 5. And I can't believe you guys are doing this. And he said, and I'll never forget these words, because he said, that's not a coincidence. That's providence. <laughs> <clears throat> so
Somebody's holding it up back there. <laughs> well, I don't remember it that way. <laughs> but I apologize. <laughs> uh, you know, so Mark has been an incredible friend to me and to the movement. You know, there are a lot of people who occasionally talk about Convention of States. There are people that we've paid advertising dollars to talk about Convention of States. There's only one guy who lives and breathes this because he knows it will save the country. And what he really cares about is saving the country. And I want to close with that. That's my good friend, Mark Levin. God bless you, brother. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. There's one more thing. I got to do one more thing before you leave. This is a pretty big deal, Mark. So, you know, you saw those challenge coins go out, right? Um, and so... You lost it. I lost the challenge coin. Yeah, where is the challenge coin? No, it's, I don't have a challenge coin. But you saw all these challenge coins go out. And I had a volunteer. And uh, this volunteer, one of our volunteers, is a challenge coin recipient. And so she's from Minnesota. She's one of our incredible leaders. She's our state leader from Minnesota. I'm looking for my glasses here so I can read this appropriately. And she's, she wanted me to read this to you tonight as a challenge coin recipient. Her name is Jackie Burns. She's from Minnesota. She says, because of your words, to a caller, one night, I was inspired to step into the volunteer role I signed up for a year prior. Last summer, I was awarded a COS Challenge coin. Truthfully, I owe it to you and my team. I'd like to invite Jackie Burns up because she says, please accept my challenge coin as a reminder that your words fall on fertile ground with my undying love and respect. <laughs> Let me just tell you, yeah. the, the caller that night said, you know, Mark, what you should do, and you went off on him. <laughs> and, and you said, what do you mean what I should do? I wrote a whole book for you called The Liberty Amendments. What are you doing? That was my defining moment. I thought, how long, Jack? God said to me, are you going to pretend like he's not talking to you? So I want you to know that all those idiots that call, <laughs> I was one of them. And this is your reminder that your words fall on fertile ground. Oh, my Please Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.